Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open up our Bibles to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 25 through 37. This is a very familiar and popular text because it contains within the verses, I suppose one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, certainly one of the most famous parables that Jesus taught with. You know it probably as the story of the Good Samaritan. If you attended Sunday school as a child or even vacation Bible school, it's almost certain that you were taught the story of the Good Samaritan. We often use it in churches to teach children about generosity and sharing and kindness. But there's much more in this text than a lesson on personal ethics. In fact, I've chosen to title this message, The Perfect Storm of Teaching. We watched with great concern last week as our friends on the Gulf Coast bore the brunt of Hurricane Michael. We are grateful, aren't we, that the Lord was gracious and spared many, many lives. Thankfully, such large and uh, devastating storms are relatively rare because of the many factors that allow for the development of such storms all have to come together in just the right portions and just the right ingredients and just the right time of year. Well, we call such storms perfect storms. And this passage today is a perfect storm of teaching. And so let's read this lesson that Jesus taught here in Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, and when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put them on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return I will pay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy to him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His Word. Now we talk about those ingredients that have to come together in just the right portions and just the right circumstance for there to be the perfect storm. The ingredients in the perfect storm of teaching, first of all you have to have a perfect teacher. And of course the Lord Jesus fills that bill. Look in verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's a man in the throngs of people that followed Jesus, listening to his every word, who was referred to as a lawyer. 
Now this simply means that he was an expert in the Old Testament, which they called the law. He was not a practitioner apparently of civil law. Today we would call him a theologian. Now remember, wherever Jesus went, these religious leaders known as the scribes and Pharisees would follow. Some of them, for example, Nicodemus in John chapter three seemed to be sincere. They were looking for truth. And there were others who were not sincere, anything but. They were trying to catch Jesus in a fault, trying to trip him up when some error. They would pose a question that they hoped would cause him to incriminate himself. Well, the most famous of these occasions is recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 8, when uh, some of these men obviously set up a woman and uh, she was uh, caught in the act of adultery. And these men dragged her before the Lord Jesus and said, what do you say we ought to do with her? They knew the Old Testament law said she was to be put to death. And Jesus, the scripture says, knelt down and began to draw in the dirt with his finger. Now we don't know what he wrote, but I heard a preacher say years ago that he suspected it was the phone numbers of their girlfriends. <laughs> we don't know other than Jesus when he stood up and said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And their conscience got the better of them. They began to go out from the oldest to the youngest until it was only Jesus and the woman. And he said, woman, where are thine accusers? And then he said something wonderful. He says, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. And so the Lord was certainly known for his compassion. He was known for his healing. He healed the, the sick, the lame, the blind. He caused the, the dead to, to rise from the grave. But what Jesus was most known for and what he primarily did is he went around from village to village teaching. He was a teacher. In fact, that was a title that many people called him. His own disciples often called him rabbi or teacher or master. And here's another occasion. This man calls him a teacher and rightly so. And what a teacher Jesus was. Most of us thinking back over our education can remember one or two teachers that stand out in our mind who were especially effective in our lives. Jesus was not only a great teacher, he was the perfect teacher. Now what made him such a wonderful teacher? Well, there's certainly a lot of factors. I've settled on three that I'd like to communicate to you this morning. First of all was his accessibility. Jesus went to the highways and the hedges of life where the people were working, common people, fishermen, farmers, and he taught everyone who would listen. In fact, one of the things that he would often say right before he started teaching is, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. That is, this information is available to anyone who would receive it. He did not sequester himself away in the ivory tower. He didn't hold forth with the academically elite of society. So he was accessible. Another thing that causes Jesus to stand out as a teacher is his methodology. He often taught in parables. And you know that parables are earthly stories with heavenly or deeply spiritual meanings. But Jesus used stories or illustrations from everyday life that really communicated transcendent truth. He used the things that everyone was familiar with. Relationships, farming, fishing, construction. Let me just give you three of my favorites. One was uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son, do you remember? The man whose son asked for his inheritance before his father died, he went off and wasted in wanton living. And he came back home and the father received him with joy. All of us can relate to that because all of us uh, have relationships that oftentimes 
are broken. And that's why that story is so meaningful and moving. And then most people in that day, and still many people today around the world, make their living through agriculture. So Jesus told the parable of the soils to illustrate the gospel. Remember the farmer went out and spread his seed, he broadcast it. Some fell upon good soil, some on rocky soil, some on thorny soil. But Jesus talked about that soil that produces fruit is the good soil. That's an agricultural concept. And, and then the one found in Matthew chapter 7 is a parable of construction. I thought about it a lot this week as I saw those pictures of those beach houses being swept away in Mexico Beach, Florida. Matthew 7, 24 says, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus was not giving architectural advice, was he? He was talking to us about our life and how we're to build our life on him, the rock, and that any other foundation is shifting sand and will not stand against the storms of life. But verse 28 in Matthew 7 is really what I remember. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as other scribes. That's really what made Jesus a great teacher. Yes, he was accessible to the masses, and yes, he was known for his teaching and parables, his methodology, but what people walked away saying was that guy teaches with authority and not as the scribes. That is incidentally why the scribes hated him so. It's because they were used to being the ones that people came to with their theological questions. And Jesus was not like them. See, the scribes often taught by quoting rabbis and other scribes who came before them. Well, Rabbi so-and-so says this. Rabbi so-and-so says this. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, thus says the Lord. He spoke with authority and power and people took notice. He was not only a great teacher, he was the perfect teacher. That's the first element to this storm. The second is the perfect question. And it was asked by this lawyer. He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we're not told much about this man's background or his character. We don't know whether he was sincere in his question or not, but he certainly hit upon the right question. The most important question in the universe, indeed the perfect question, and what this question reveals, what must I do to have eternal life, tells us a lot about this man's worldview. The first thing it tells us about his worldview is that he believed there was eternal life to gain. Did you know that the fastest growing demographic religiously in the United States are what they call the nuns? Not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. When asked, what religion do you espouse? They say, none. That is the fastest growing segment of our population. They don't believe that there is eternal life to gain, or at least say they don't. This man was not like that. He asked the right question. He believed there was eternal life to gain. He's reflecting what we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 311, which says that God has set eternity in the heart of men. The Apostle Paul says a similar thing in Romans 1 and 2, that all men are without excuse because he has written his law upon our hearts. And we have the evidence 
of general revelation. The second thing it tells us about this man's worldview is that he understood that eternal life was not bestowed corporately, but individually. He was, after all, a Jewish person. And many of the Jewish people apparently believed that by their genetics, that is, that they were descendants of Abraham who received God's covenant promise, that they automatically were right with God. Remember, some of them were going around saying, we're children of Abraham. The Bible says, don't say you're children of Abraham, because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones over here. And so he understood that. He used a very specific personal pronoun when he asked the question. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the third thing we know about this man is that he knew Jesus had the answer to the question. He'd been around long enough to see Jesus answer this question before. He was, as Jesus once said of another person, not far from the kingdom. Not far from the kingdom. That is, he had the essential ingredients and intellectual knowledge. What he lacked is repentance and faith. Well, that is the perfect question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The third ingredient is the perfect answer. And it is forthcoming in verse 26. And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? Remember, this man is an expert in the Old Testament law. You tell me. Jesus often did that, didn't he? He answered a question with a question. Isn't that irritating? <laughs> Jesus used it very effectively. What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now this man is a professional theologian. It should not surprise us that he quoted Old Testament scripture when Jesus turned this question back on him. Really what Jesus asked, literally, is how do you recite it? Not is how do you interpret the law, how do you recite it? Because he was quoting, of course, Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema of the Old Testament, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your might. And being especially pious, he adds another Old Testament reference, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, did he just pull this out of the air? Was he especially astute? After all, Jesus says, you have answered correctly. In front of all these people, the Lord of the universe asked him a question and he got it right. You'd think this would be the high point of his life. But he didn't leave it alone. Why do you think he got the answer right? Was he particularly intelligent, perhaps? I don't think that's it. I think he'd been traveling around with Jesus for a while and had heard Jesus teach before and he realized this was the great theme of all of Jesus' teaching. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, there's another occasion where Jesus was surrounded by Pharisees and Sadducees and, and scribes. The scripture says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. He says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. And this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You see, just, this was a theme of Jesus' teaching wherever he went. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. This man knew that, but again, having answered the question correctly, 
He couldn't leave it alone. Look at verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Well, sometimes, not very often, but every once in a while, when we are witnessing to a lost person, are we doing biblical counseling? Someone will put a question right up on the tee and let you hit it. And that's exactly what this man did for Jesus. He said, uh, who is my neighbor? And in my Bible, there's a little pause, two or three blank lines before the next section. And I, and I take it in that blank space, Jesus smiles and thinks almost aloud, glad you asked. Because he has this perfect illustration for what he's going to say. And then he begins in verse 30 with the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, note that phrasing. He went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everyone in that audience would have instantly known the road. They'd likely traveled it themselves from time to time. Remember, Jerusalem was situated several thousand feet above sea level, and Jericho was below sea level, and though they were only a few miles apart, it was on a road that was particularly steep, descending down those several thousand feet rather quickly. And it was a, a narrow and a difficult path. There were lots of bends and curves. It was a perfect place, in other words, for robbers to ambush a merchant who was traveling between those two cities, and it happened all the time. And that's why it was not advisable for people to travel alone on that road. And so when Jesus says, here's a man, he's obviously traveling alone, they would have taken interest in that story. And sure enough, these robbers stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And, and now here's where the story gets interesting, verse 31. And by chance a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. Now this was a religious society, in fact it was a theocracy. And the priest held a very high place. And those priests, those priests would serve for a time at the temple. And uh, many of them lived in uh, other cities. And one of the places that many of them lived was Jericho. So obviously this man has finished his religious service in Jerusalem. He's coming right out of church in other words. And he's on his way home to Jericho where he sees this man who's been badly beaten. By the way this is a Jewish man. And instead of offering him assistance, Scripture says he went around the other way. Now there's all sorts of theories of why he did. Some think, well, maybe he would have made himself ceremonially unclean and unfit to be a priest had he touched the man, particularly if he died. We're not told. The truth is why he just didn't take the time to do it. Jesus leaves it at that. And then another man comes along. Jesus describes him, verse 32, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. Now the Levites were those whose task it was to assist the priest. So he too would have been coming from religious service. And so he too, following the lead of the priest, goes around on the other side. Now by this time, those in the audience who have become invested in this story would likely be upset. Why would the priest and the Levite not offer assistance to this good Jewish brother? And here's where Jesus hits him right between the eyes. Verse 33, but, that is the priest didn't help him, the Levite didn't have him, but a Samaritan. Now, there would have been an audible gasp. 
a Samaritan. You see, that Samaritans were viewed by most Jewish people as inferior. Inferior intellectually, genetically, culturally, socially, in every way. They were descendants of those who had occupied the territory who, who were Gentiles. They were not fully Jewish nor fully Gentile. And they, they simply were not accepted by the Jewish people. That's why it was so scandalous, remember, when Jesus sat down at the well and talked with the Samaritan woman. Two reasons. One, she was a woman. And it was not done in public for a prominent male to speak publicly with a woman, especially one of her reputation. And on top of that, she was a Samaritan. That's why his disciples, when they came back from buying food, were so shocked to find him there speaking with her. And yet Jesus makes a Samaritan the hero of this story. Now look what the Samaritan does. He was on his journey, he came upon him and went, and as he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. That is, he invested personally of his time and possessions. Now, not many of us carry around bandages in our backpack, likely this man didn't. So, where do you think he got the bandages from? He had to take off his coat. And take his own garment and cut them up likely. And then he took his own oil and wine, which is outrageously expensive in those days. Very rare. And yet he lavished them on this man for his own good. It was the only medicine that he had. And then he took him and put him on his own beast. It's one thing to roll down your window at an intersection and give somebody a $5 bill for breakfast. It's quite another to put them in your car. Take them to where they need to go. And that's what this man did. He got down from his beast of burden, placed the man on, and he walked. He was inconvenienced. He was uh, made to feel fatigue on behalf of another person. And then he brings him to an inn and took care of him. That as he stayed there overnight and watched him through the night, this man was nearly to the point of death. And on the next day he took out two denarii, which was a significant amount of money two full days wages and gives them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll return and we'll pay you. He basically took out his checkbook and gave him a blank check and signed it and said, whatever you need, I'll settle up with you on my way back. Now, the people would have been mesmerized by this story. Unheard of that a Samaritan would be the hero, particularly over a priest and a Levite and Jesus is bringing this thing to a crescendo moment and he turns again to the lawyer and asks him a question. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? Well, this uh, Jewish scribe sort of tips his hand about what's going on in his heart. He says, the one who showed mercy towards him. Now, when you ask a, a room full of six-year-olds in Bible school, which of these three men was found to be a good neighbor? You know what they always say? The Samaritan. But the lawyer doesn't. He can't bring himself to say a Samaritan did anything good. <laughs> he just says that guy, that one who showed him mercy. Of course, Jesus is the perfect teacher. By the way, I should have added to the reason Jesus is a perfect teacher, he's omniscient. <laughs> He knows everything. That's a good quality to have in a teacher, isn't it? 
They know everything. Jesus knew what this man's real problem was. On the outside, he was a good man. I'm sure he came well qualified and respected in the community, but he had prejudice in his heart towards the Samaritan. This is what Jesus is pointing out to him. Now you say, well, look, Pastor, all that's ancient history. What in the world would that have to say for those Christians living in the present day? Well, I think it has a lot to say. We, we often read this text in the ethics classroom and we say, well, this shows that we Christians ought to be good neighbors. Of course that's true. We ought to be willing to help and share with others. Of course that is true. We ought to rally for justice for the oppressed. Of course that's true. But, but I, I think the key to this whole passage is found back in verse 29. And if you weren't paying close attention, you might have skipped over it. Look what it says. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who then is my neighbor? This man's basic sin is the sin of so many in our world, it's self-justification. He had answered in his own heart the question that he posed to Jesus. What can I do to inherit eternal life? He thought he had done it. And Jesus is pointing out, you haven't. He's really saying in effect what Paul writes in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, including the scribes and the Pharisees. He really had the same problem as another young man that Jesus came across, we call the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, after Jesus had recited some commandments, said, all of these I've kept since my youth. Jesus didn't say, right which of course he had not kept all of those commandments from his youth, but he was convinced that he did. He was self-justified that he was right with God. And so Jesus says, good, now go sell all you have and give to the poor. <laughs> Being omniscient, Jesus knew what his sin was. It was the sin of greed. So Jesus is using the law with the purpose that it was given. You see, Paul says, by the law shall no flesh be justified. The law's purpose was never, remember this man's an expert in the law, the purpose of the law was never to say, meet this standard and you're in. Because none of us would ever meet that standard because God is holy, which means he's perfect, and none of us qualify. The purpose of the law was to be a mirror to our soul to show us our shortcoming so that we would pursue a savior, so that we would cry out to Jesus for mercy. This is the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is pointing out the impossibility of keeping even the essence of the law. He, he had this man state the essence of the law. The summary of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But the scribes and Pharisees were never content with the essence of the law. They obsessed over the minutia of the law. You know, the law says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's an essential part of the Ten Commandments, would you agree? But they would debate over things like this. Is it permissible to eat a chicken's egg that was laid on the Sabbath day? They really debated that. Books were written about that. They were famous for arguing the question of how many angels could fit upon the pen, the head of a pen. These are the kind of things they spent their day 
debating. But, but Jesus cuts through all of that minutia and says, just keep the essence of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he couldn't do it. Well, friends, if we can't keep the essence of the law, we surely can't keep the minutia of the law. That's why Jesus said of the, the scribes and Pharisees that they strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. They're straining this, this water of theology to get every fine point right, and they miss this large animal that clogs their airways, metaphorically. That's exactly what this man was doing. This, this story of the Good Samaritan is more than a story of, of ethics. It is that, but it's much more than that. It is a great sign that says, you fall short of the glory of God. And our only hope then is for a substitute. One who is righteous. One who is willing to exchange his righteousness for our sins. Beloved, this is the gospel. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe, not whoever would keep the law perfectly, not whoever would keep it better than others, that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. This is nothing more or less than the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. This has a lot to do with the Lord's Supper. Because in the Lord's Supper, we remember the Lord is our substitute. In Isaiah 53, 800 years before Jesus was born, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, Isaiah wrote, Surely He bore our griefs and our sorrows He carried. He was pierced through for our trespasses, our trespasses and crushed for our iniquities. That's Jesus. The reason Jesus was beaten and bloodied and whipped the reason a crown of thorns placed upon his head, the reason that his hands and feet were nailed into wooden blocks, the reason a Roman soldier thrust a spear through his side was not for anything that he had done wrong. It's because that's what he came to do. Jesus came to die for sinners. And the only hope of that rich young ruler, the only hope of this young man here in Luke 10, and friends, the only hope for you today if you're lost is to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. You can't be a good enough neighbor. You can't be a good enough citizen. You can't be ethical enough to make it to heaven. You will fall short. This is the point of Luke 10. And if you're here today and you genuinely want to know the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Put your faith and trust in Him. And what that means is not just you give intellectual assent to some facts. This man had the facts. He didn't have faith. What it means you come to Him on His terms with empty pockets and outturned hands and say, Lord, I don't have anything to offer you. I come as a beggar. That's what Jesus meant when He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer God. They come seeking only His mercy. And that's why, as we said last week, there's so few academics, so few wealthy, so few from the noble classes that are Christians. Because to become a Christian, all of that stuff has to become meaningless and worthless to you. You have to come to Him in humility as a little child, not giving answers, but seeking answers. 
But here's the blessed, wonderful good news. If you will come to him on his terms, he will not turn you away. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of that. That we had nothing but sin to offer. He took that sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we would become his righteousness. And then he imputed his righteousness to us by faith on the cross. And now we are accepted by God the Father. Amen? Amen. And so let's thank the Lord for that wonderful truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this perfect storm of teaching. Thank you that Jesus' primary task other than to die was to teach the good news. And what a wonderful teacher he was. He was accessible to everyone. He didn't hide in the ivory tower. He taught in a way that people could understand through parables and illustrations. And Father, um, I thank you that uh, he answered once and for all uh, the perfect question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said it in John 3:16 to Nicodemus, believe. So Father, I pray if there's any person here today, even one who does not know you in the free pardon of sin, that they would despair of anything they're holding on to, that they think they can negotiate with you. Father, help them to see the utter poverty spiritually that they're in. Lord, you say blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the ones who see you. So Father, grant them repentance and faith today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.